Let's also remember that our Ventura campus, whom we deeply love, is joining us for this sermon. Let's give them a round of love. And we're in the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 3 together. So open up your Bibles. Matthew chapter 3. We are going to be looking at the person and ministry of John the Baptist this morning in the first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 3. The title of this message is A People Prepared for the Lord. A People Prepared for the Lord. Very much has to do with the ministry of John the Baptist as does it have to do with our ministry and our lives. So we'll see that as the text unfolds. I am reading and teaching from the New American Standard Bible. So again, we'll read the first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 3. It says in verse 1, Now in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. And Jerusalem, all of Jerusalem was going out to him, and all Judea and all the district around the Jordan. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. But when they saw, but when, excuse me, he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, Well, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you, that God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. And the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. As for me, I baptize you with water for, the, for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire." And his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, as a church, we rejoice in your word, your living, active, inerrant, infallible, wonderful word. We rejoice because in it, Jesus is revealed to us. We're thankful that it's like a mirror to us. We, we see our lives and things, Lord, that you would call us out of and things that you would call us to, ways that you would want to deal with our lives. Thank you, Father, that you love us so, that you are intimately and infinitely concerned with the fullness of our being. And so would your concern for our lives, your love for us, be made evident in the hearing and the teaching and preaching and reading of your word this morning. Give us ears to hear what you have to say. Give us hearts that want to obey. Help us in our minds to comprehend. Help us to walk the course you've set before us. And please now, Lord, by grace, help me to teach and preach in a way that's faithful to you and your word and helpful to these dear brothers and sisters whom I love. We ask it together in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Well, the text starts out in verse 1 there of chapter 3 by saying, Now, in those days, in those days, it's a little ambiguous as to which days Matthew is referring to here. If we want to look in the previous verse for a little clue, we see that we last left Jesus and his family in Nazareth. You remember Christ was born in Bethlehem and they had to flee from Herod to Egypt. And then at the right time they came back and they went to live in Nazareth. And we all know that. Later on he'd be called Jesus from Nazareth. And we understand that Jesus grew up in Nazareth. But now our text in chapter 3 starts 30 years or so later. So there's a big gap in time about which we have very little information. The Gospel of Luke tells us that when Jesus was 12, he went to the uh, temple with his parents, and there he was talking to some of the teachers of the law, and they were astounded with his wisdom and so on at such a young age. But that's about it as far as what we know about the childhood of Jesus. We know he grew up in Nazareth, and that Joseph was a carpenter, and Jesus learned some of that trade, and yet there's much that is left unsaid. So what can we say about what isn't said? Well, we can say this, according to our view of the Word of God, is that we believe that Matthew here is giving us what we need to know and what we need to believe. The sufficiency of Scripture. God is giving us here what we need to know and what we need to believe. There are other sources that claim to have some knowledge about the childhood of Jesus and his early years. I don't know about those. I know that this is the Word of God. And the Word of God gives us what we need to know and what we need to believe. And Matthew narrows in on this time. Again, it's about 30 years later. We know that by looking at the other Gospels. Jesus would be in his 30s now, as is John the Baptist here. They were born just six months apart. And we have this new character come on the scene, John the Baptist. And he is definitely a character. Did you get the description of him in verse 4? It says, Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. In case you don't know what locusts are, they are bugs. (laughs) Grasshoppers, crickets, and the like. Locusts and wild honey. Why the two together? Because I assume bugs taste better dipped in honey. It seems very strange to us. It wasn't that removed from the culture. Locusts were a steady part of an extremely poor person's diet. You can imagine that. And John was living a certain kind of life here. He was out in the wilderness. And there he was, bugs in his teeth and wearing camel skin. We imagine him looking kind of wily. We imagine he's out in the wilderness and he eats bugs. He probably had a big beard and crazy hair. He probably looked at me like me two weeks ago before I cut my hair. I was preparing for this teaching. I was trying to feel it. I was getting in the character of John the Baptist. These are not trivial things. These are significant. For the very picture of John the Baptist would cause the Jewish reader to think about the prophets of old. This description is very much akin to Elijah the prophet. In the book of 1 Kings, you remember Elijah the prophet. He was similar to this. He had some hairy garment on and a leather belt. 
And this new character comes on the scene. He's in the wilderness. He's unique in his appearance. He's got the persona of an Old Testament prophet. And he's calling the nation of Israel to repentance, to turn to God. And this is, as the story unfolds, an incredibly significant event. For prior to this, God had been more or less silent with the nation of Israel for 400 years. What happens between the Old Testament, its close, and the opening of the New Testament is what we call the intertestamental period. 400 years where effectively, biblically, it seems that God had not spoken to the nation of Israel through a prophet in the way that he had done previously for thousands of years. And now this man comes on the scene with a persona and appearance and vibe and tone and message of an Old Testament prophet. And that was significant because Israel believed, the Jews believed after that period of silence, that the next prophet who would come on the scene would be announcing the arrival of the Messiah. And indeed, that's exactly what we see happening here. Now, why did they think that? And why is the story unfolding this way? Well, let's turn back to the Old Testament. Turn to the left a few pages to the last book in the Old Testament, Malachi. (laughs) It's not Malachi, it's Malachi. He was Jewish, not Italian. (laughs) Malachi chapter 4, last chapter of the Old Testament, last two verses of the Old Testament, and we'll get a little context here. God speaking to the nation of Israel says in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Judgment language. And he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. Restoration language. Lest I come and smite the land with a curse. Now notice what God is saying here. He's closing this period of revelation now known to us as the Old Testament. And he's telling them, there's another prophet who will come. Be looking out for him. I'm sending to you Elijah. And Elijah is going to announce the coming of the Lord. The Messiah is how that's taken here. And there's two components there. There was the judgment language and the restoration language. In the Old Testament, those two um, sort of ways of thinking about the coming of the Messiah are always collapsed into one. It's called foreshortening in prophetic biblical studies. They're collapsed into one. The Old Testament prophets didn't make a careful or um, a big time span between those events, but we know in hindsight now that the first coming of Christ had to do with restoration, forgiveness, a calling to repentance and renewal. And that the second coming has to do with judgment. Everything that's ever gone wrong being set right. And both of them, again, are collapsed into this passage as we see generally in the Old Testament prophets. God said to the nation of Israel, Elijah will come and announce this coming, this arrival, and this ministry of the Messiah. Restoration, forgiveness, and judgment. Setting right everything that has gone wrong. So then... The Jews, formed by the Old Testament, would be expecting Elijah. And ever since this time, at the Passover meal, when they set up their table, there's an extra chair at the table, seated, prepared, plate and everything for Elijah. 
You go into any observant Jewish home, even today, and there's a chair expecting Elijah. Now look what Jesus has to say about John the Baptist and this promise of the coming of Elijah. As he turned to the right now to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, we have the commentary of Christ on John the Baptist and his ministry. The context here of Matthew chapter 11 is that John the Baptist finds himself in prison. He's offended Herod. Herod has put him in prison. He's there. It's not going the way that he expected it would go, quite honestly. The last thing he thought would happen to him when Messiah came to establish his kingdom is that he, John the Baptist, the forerunner, the herald, the one who was proclaiming the coming of the kingdom, would wind up in jail to this fake King Herod. But there he is. And his life, very much like our lives sometimes, is not turning out the way he expected. So he did what we often do. He wondered if Jesus really was who he said he was and was going to do what he really said he would do. So he sends some messengers, some of his disciples to Jesus, and they ask him, Jesus, John's sitting in prison, and he wants to know, are you really the one, or should we look for someone else? Can anybody relate to that feeling? Life isn't turning out the way I thought it would. Jesus, is this, do I, is this, are you really the one? And Jesus answered and says in verse 5, in verse 4, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight and the lame walk and the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who keeps from stumbling over me. Go tell John, I know life doesn't look exactly how he thought it would, but tell him of the evidence of the kingdom through my miraculous mercy and miracles. Power. And then... In verse 7, and as these were going away, Jesus began to speak to the multitudes about John. So here's his commentary on John. This has to do with the person of Elijah. He says to them, what did you go out into the wilderness to look at? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. What's Jesus doing there? Some rhetorical questions. He's getting his audience now to think about John the Baptist and who he was. Because if John the Baptist is wondering if Jesus is really the one, the promised Messiah, the King, then he assumes that the multitudes are thinking the same thing. So he says, well, let's talk about John the Baptist and his message. Who'd you go out to see? A reed shaken by the wind? In other words, someone who is weak and easily swayed by the opinion of men? Or is it one who is dressed in soft clothing? One who is given to comfort? They're rhetorical questions. He wasn't easily swayed by the opinion of men. He was a bold, powerful prophet. He wasn't given to comfort. He was an aesthetic that lived in the wilderness and wore camel's hair and had bugs in his teeth. So then he says in verse 9, Why did you go out? To see a prophet? Yes. I say to you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is a one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. That's also from Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Jesus quoting that there, saying that it pertains to John the Baptist. Verse 11, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. What a glowing endorsement from Jesus. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Wow, what an interesting word from Jesus. 
Verse 12 is hard to understand. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violent men take it by force. What does that mean? I think the New Living Translation helps us. It translates it this way. The kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and violent people are attacking it. Remember, John the Baptist is in prison and he's going to be beheaded. This is evidence of kingdoms in conflict. Remember last week's sermon? Kingdoms in conflict here. Verse 13, for all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you care to accept it, he himself is Elijah who was to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now we see puzzle pieces falling into place. God told Israel at the end of his revelation to them, Messiah is coming. You will know because one will come before Elijah. John the Baptist comes on the scene in Matthew chapter 3 very much with the persona and the appearance of an Old Testament Elijah-like person with the same sort of call on Israel. And Jesus comments and says, I'm telling you that John the Baptist is the one that they were waiting for that would come before me, the Messiah. He himself is John the Baptist. Now we say, that's weird. What do you mean that John is Elijah? Luke, thankfully, clarifies it for us in Luke chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Speaking to John the Baptist, he says, And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him, Jesus, in the spirit and power of Elijah. There it is. So it wasn't a literal coming of Elijah. It was John the Baptist who came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. In the spirit. He had that same prophetic essence of calling Israel to repentance, to come back to their God. In the power, he came as one who was sent by God, endorsed by God, the representative of God. In order to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous. Restoration language so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So John the Baptist and Elijah and Isaiah had this ministry of turning people back to God, preparing them for his kingdom. And his mission was prophesied about. We already saw it in Malachi. And then if you turn back to Matthew chapter 3, we see that he was also prophesied about in the book of Isaiah. Matthew tells us in Matthew 3, verse 3, for this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet, saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Here we have Matthew quoting Isaiah again. Usually it's in reference to Jesus as a fulfillment of prophecies. This is John the Baptist as a fulfillment of this prophecy. And the reason that Matthew will continually from beginning to end point us back to the Old Testament is he wants us to understand that Jesus didn't just come onto the world scene out of the blue. He didn't just drop in unexpectedly. But there's a story here that's unfolding. And it's the story of Israel and God's working in and through Israel. It's the bigger story of humanity. God created humanity and created them to be under his rule and recipients of his blessing. But humanity rebelled and chose their own rule. 
and removed ourselves from the God's blessing. And so God established a nation, Israel, through whom he might reveal to the real world his righteous rule and his intended blessing, through whom he might endeavor to bring back into the world his righteous rule and his blessing. And all these promises about God's righteous rule and his blessing, his kingdom coming, are seen throughout the Old Testament. And Israel struggled with the call. Israel struggled with the rule and they fell out of the blessing. And there was always this sense that there was one coming who would fulfill the story, who would complete the story, who would cause it all to make sense. And that one is Jesus. And this part of the story is John the Baptist. And that's why Matthew's always pointing us back to the Old Testament, is that we might see that Jesus is a fulfillment, the completion of the story of Israel and the story of humanity and God's work among us. And so he quotes Isaiah chapter 40 there. Whenever the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, there is often there the intention that we would get the bigger picture of what's being said in that Old Testament passage, the broader context of that Old Testament passage. This is the way that the Hebraic understanding of Scripture worked during the time of Christ. They had a regular rhythm of committing Scripture to memory. It was very much an oral tradition. So a lot of scripture was committed to memory. And so what rabbis and teachers and others would do is when they quoted a portion of Old Testament scripture, it was meant to bring to the mind of the listener the broader picture of that Old Testament passage. That's why when Jesus stood up in the synagogue in Luke chapter 4 and began to read from Isaiah 61, he only had to read a few verses and he made his point, the day of the Messiah has come. They all had in their hearts and minds the the broader picture of that passage that was being quoted. Same idea here. When Isaiah 40 is invoked to the original Jewish reader of Matthew, there was a remembrance, a, a, a picture, a context that came to mind. And I don't want us to miss it. So I want us to turn to Isaiah chapter 40 now. Isaiah chapter 40. We'll, we'll put it on the screen, but I want you to turn there in your Bibles. If you're not used to finding Isaiah, just open up to the middle of your Bible, go right about a quarter of an inch, and you'll be there. Isaiah chapter 40. Look what's being communicated to Israel in Isaiah 40. The first words, give it away. Comfort. O comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem. So stop right there. Already already we're we're getting the idea. God is, is bringing good news in this passage to his people. These are words of comfort and kindness to his people. Continues. And call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. What's being referenced there is the Babylonian exile. When Israel was dragged away in exile to live in Babylon outside of the promised land under the harsh oppression of the Babylonians because they had disobeyed the rule and removed themselves from the blessing of God. And so God is is chastening them here. God is disciplining them here. That's what's referenced here as a Babylonian exile. But he's announcing good news. 
The time of it is coming to an end. So he says in verse 3, A voice is calling, Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. There's the language that we saw in Matthew 3. Verse 4, Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. And let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, call out. Then he answered, what shall I call out? All flesh is grass and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows upon it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. He's speaking about the promise of restoration. Israel, I know you've experienced hard times as a result of your sin. In exile, in Babylon for 70 years, away from the promise and the blessings of God. But I am speaking to you now words of comfort. I am going to bring you out of exile and back in to the place of my reign and my blessing. And he says there, his word stands forever. We can count on his promises. Verse 9 then says, get yourself up on a high mountain. Right? That speaks of an announcement that's to be made and clarity of vision. O Zion, bearer of good news, lift up your voice mightily. O Jerusalem, bearer of good news, lift it up and do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. Behold, the Lord will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arms, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom, and he will gently lead the nursing ewes. You see the message that's being given there? The message is things have been difficult for you, Israel, as a result of your own sin. But look up and listen. There's a new day that's coming. I'm giving to you an announcement. Get things straight. Prepare the way. Get the road ready. For the Lord himself is coming to you and the Lord himself will be your comfort and your shepherd. He will lead you as a shepherd leads his lambs and he will comfort and care for you. When the original audience of Matthew, the Jews, would have have read that reference from Isaiah 40 about John the Baptist, all of this would have come to their minds and they would have already started thinking, wait a minute, is this the moment where we're going to say, this is our God? Is this the moment where God himself is going to come back to us, bring us out of exile and shepherd us in his love? That's exactly how the story is unfolding with John the Baptist in his announcement, in his ministry to prepare the way and the appearance that we'll see next week of Jesus on the scene. Israel's shepherd has come to his people and he is bringing a new deliverance from exile, a new exodus, a new entrance into the promises, the blessings, and the rule of God. So, back in Matthew chapter 3 now. The ministry of John the Baptist is make ready the way of the Lord, again verse 3, and make his path straight. 
saw that language in Isaiah 40. And, and the language there is that of preparing and repairing a road. You can imagine that the roads in ancient Israel weren't that nice, right? You can look at some of our roads today. We wish they were nicer. Who likes a pothole? Who likes a hairpin when you want to go fast? You're going back to Ojai after church on the 150 and there's hairpins. You just want to go fast. You got to slow down. Boy, if we could just have a straight way. The idea is preparation. And in this ancient culture, when kings would travel from place to place to announce something, to extend their rule, to bring their blessing or whatever it was, they had minions who would go before them and prepare the road. After all, why should a king deal with a pothole? Why should a king have to go over that pass? Why not just straighten the road? Why should a king have to drop down in the hot valley? Why should the king have to deal with the curbs? curves? Let's make straight the path for the coming of the king. It's metaphoric language for the efforts of John the Baptist who has been sent to make straight the path for the coming of the king of Israel. And the work is not physical roads. The work is spiritual. The language is metaphoric for a spiritual work that had to be done in Israel. Now, how did Israel need to be spiritually adjusted? What were their potholes and their curves and their hills and their valleys? What needed to be straightened to be ready for the king? Remember, what Jesus the king is bringing is a promised blessing and rule of God. The obstacles... The obstacles that needed to be removed, the obstacles in the road to the blessing and the rule of God were the people's commitment to sin. That's what John is confronting. The obstacle to the blessing and the rule of God was the people's commitment to sin. It kept them from being ruled by God. It kept them from being in the place of being blessed by God. The obstacle to his rule is our commitment to sin. Because sin brings a different kind of rule altogether, doesn't it? And sin doesn't bring a blessing. Sin brings a curse. And this was the experience of Israel in exile. They had sinned and ignored the word of the Lord and they rebelled against the Lord and they went into 70 years of exile where they didn't get to experience his righteous rule or his gracious blessing. It's very much a picture of seasons and spaces and places in our lives. We are meant to live under the kingdom rule and the kingdom blessing of God. And just as Israel needed to make straight the paths, so much of our life has got to become about making straight the path for the blessing and the rule of the Lord. The preparation of the heart, the dealing and the confronting with our own commitment to sin. So John the Baptist came on the scene and he's calling Israel to turn from sin to God that they might be a people prepared for the coming of the Lord, his blessing and his rule. The straight paths that are pictured there are the repentance of the people. And the way that this is being played out in the life of Israel at this time is through baptism. See that pictured in verses 5 and 6. So Jerusalem was going out to him and all Judea and all the district around the Jordan and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. I brought a map for you. You guys like maps? 
I, well, I don't really care that much, but I like maps. Um, oh, my laser pointer stopped working. Oh, man, I wish I had a new laser pointer. <laughs> Just kidding. So here's a map of the middle of Israel, the big blue vein running down. <laughs> Jeff's going to get me a laser pointer. The big blue vein running down the middle is the Jordan River. The little ball at the top of that is the Sea of Galilee. It's a lake, in case you didn't know. And down at the bottom is the Dead Sea, the lowest spot in the face of the earth. Toward the upper part on the left there, yes, your left, we see Nazareth, where Jesus is at currently in our story. And down on the bottom left there, by that red dot, we see Jerusalem. John the Baptist was baptizing people just north of the Dead Sea, somewhere east of Jerusalem there. That's called the wilderness of Judea. Judea is the region surrounding Jerusalem. And that was very much the wilderness. If you go there today, it's dry and arid and wild feeling. There's not much development there. You can imagine a couple thousand years ago. And so John is out there with bugs in his teeth and fur on his back and he's calling the nation to repentance and they're coming and they're being baptized by him, confessing their sins. Now, what does this baptism speak of? John's baptism was unique. It's not the same as Christian baptism. How many of you have been baptized as Christians? Raise your hand. This is not the same thing that's going on here with John. Baptism always pictures something, okay? Christian baptism pictures our forgiveness of sins that we have identified with Christ's death on the cross, pictured by going down in the water. And so we too are identified with his resurrection from the dead. Coming up out of the water is the picture there. We go down, guilty of sin is the picture. We come up cleansed, made brand new. A new creation in Christ is the picture. So in Christian baptism, inaugurated by Jesus in Matthew 28, saying, go and make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Forgiveness and redemption is what is represented and pictured. Here in the baptism of John, we don't necessarily have forgiveness happening. That's not what's being pictured. Israel had a different forgiveness economy altogether, right? We're still talking about Old Testament sacrifices in the temple, so on and so forth. This is an identification, a self-aware identification of saying, I'm not ready for the coming of the kingdom. I've been living outside the rule and the blessing of God, which are the qualities of the kingdom. I've made myself an outsider from those things. So I'm confessing that. I'm turning from the way that's taken me outside of God's rule and God's blessing, and I'm turning back to God as one of God's people. It's not forgiveness that's pictured here. It's merely the decision to begin to go God's way. And it was profound that Jews were being baptized in this way. Because at this time in history, Jews were not baptized And they weren't baptized that way. They had ritual washings, but that was something different. You know who was baptized during this time? Gentiles. Those are non-Jews who wanted to convert to Judaism. And when they did that, it was saying this, I have previously been an outsider to the rule and the blessing of the God of Israel. And I now want to enter into his care and his sovereignty into his kingdom. And I'm identifying with that through baptism. 
That was done for Gentiles converting to Judaism. John is calling Israel to be baptized like they're a bunch of pagans. This was a loud, clear message to them. You guys have stepped outside of the bound of God's rule and God's blessing. It's time to come home. I'm the one from Isaiah 40, chapter 3. Jesus is the one who leads us out of exile and God appearing in the flesh who is our shepherd that brings us near to himself. And it seems as though they were getting the picture. They were coming out by the droves being baptized. It was getting them tuned in, attentive, and going God's way. The king is here. The king is right. I've been wrong. And so John's message then is an urgent message to turn around while there's still time. It's a reminder to them that there are two roads you can go by. And that is more than just a Led Zeppelin song. There are two roads you can go by. There's judgment language included in this passage. Look in verse 10. Verse 10 says, And the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Verse 12, And his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, and he will burn up the chaff in the unquenchable fire. This is judgment language. John is saying to Israel, listen, there's two ways of being. There are trees that bear fruit and there are trees that don't bear fruit. There are two ways of being. There's wheat and there's chaff. The chaff was the outer husk of the wheat. The wheat is the fruit, so to speak, and the husk is just the part that is discarded. He's saying, Israel, remember I have come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Remember in 1 Kings 18, when Elijah said to the nation, if Baal is God, then follow him. But if God is God, then follow him. Israel, there are two ways that you can go by, and you're going down the wrong path. It was an urgent call to turn and get on the right path, make straight the path for the coming of the Lord. And it's, it's judgment language. He says, here's the deal. Trees that don't bear fruit are cut down. Everybody got that. Nobody pays for orchard land and lets trees exist that aren't bearing fruit. You get rid of them. They got that. The inherent between the lines is what, what kind of tree are you, Israel? And there is wheat and there is chaff. And he says, the ax is already laid bare to the root. Jesus is coming. With him comes ultimately judgment. And he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. You know what that was? After they gathered all the wheat together, they would take the kernels and put them on what was called a threshing floor. And then they would take what was called a winnowing fork, kind of like a pitchfork, and there would be the wheat piled up, and they would dig in and just sift it and thrash it. And that action would separate the chaff, that little husk, from the wheat, the kernel that was the fruit, the valuable part. They liked to do it on windy days because when they would throw it up and that chaff, that husk would come off the wheat, it would just blow away. And then what would fall on the threshing floor was the wheat that they could use. Here, the language is a little more vivid than just the wind. The chaff will be burned up with unquenchable fire. There are trees that bear fruit. There is wheat and there are trees that don't bear fruit. And there is chaff. Israel, there are two roads you can go by. 
I am calling you to go the king's way and to bring yourself back under his righteous rule and his gracious blessing. Surely, when these words were spoken to a Jewish audience, they would have thought of Psalm 1. That's the way they thought. Blessed is the one who does not walk and step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord. See, two different ways. And who meditates on his law day and night. Here comes this imagery. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields fruit in its season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Continuing. Not so the wicked, right? Two roads. They are like the chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. There are two roads, Israel. You're on the wrong road. So the message that he gives them in verse 2 is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the crux of it. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the principle on which everything else in the gospel of Matthew depends. When Jesus comes on the scene in Matthew chapter 4 preaching, he'll say the identical words, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There are two roads, there are two kinds of trees, there's chaff and there's wheat. Let's make straight the way for the coming of the king and the qualities of his kingdom. Repent, therefore. So what does that mean? Repent. What does that word mean really? I think we throw it around, but what does it mean and what would it have meant when they heard it? What was their understanding? Well, if you look it up in an American dictionary these days, I looked it up in the New Oxford American Dictionary. It said to repent is to feel or express regret about one's wrongdoing. To feel or express regret about one's wrongdoing. The Greek idea was that of intellectual change. Well, I'll change my mind about that. That that might not be the right way for culture or for society to go. I'll, I'll change my mind. The Greek idea was very much American about it. I mean, Americans have no problem having opinions about Jesus. It's when it comes to following Jesus that things get sticky. Again, the dictionary definition, to feel or express regret about one's wrongdoing. But that's not the biblical idea of repentance. It's not about feeling regret. Often that has to do with the fact that, gosh, that didn't work out, now I'm in jail. Gosh, that didn't work out, now I'm divorced. Gosh, that didn't work out, now my kids hate me. Gosh, that didn't work out, now I'm broke. We have that kind of regret. And we express it all the time. We say, oh, sorry. Oh, sorry, dude. We cut someone off on purpose. Oh, sorry. (laughs) The biblical picture for repentance is different. The Old Testament imagery was that of calling back to God, his people who had broken their covenant relationship with him. It wasn't about merely changing their minds. It wasn't about saying, I'm sorry. It wasn't about feeling bad. It was about, here's the salient point, lifestyle change. That's 
what the original hearers would have got. John was calling them not to say, oh, John, I'm sorry, put me in the water, and when I come up, I'll feel better because I feel bad. That's not what he's saying. He was calling them to lifestyle change. The Greek word for repentance is metanoia. The idea is a change here in this context of one's way of life. I'm going to get super geeky with you for a moment. I'm going to give you the tense and the mood of the Greek word as it's found in Matthew chapter 3. Oh no. What is mood? Mood is like, is it a command or a question or a statement? That's the mood. This is in the imperative mood. That means it's a command. John's not saying, here's the deal, guys. I don't want to like, um, I don't want to trouble you or bother you or anything, but if you get around to it, you know, Messiah is coming and I would suggest that you, you know, maybe change your ways on a couple things if it's not too much trouble. It's not a suggestion. It's an imperative. It's a command. Remember when your mom used to say, it is imperative that you clean your room. It's a command. It's imperative that you clean up your lives, he's saying to them. And the tense was present, a little different than our English language. It means an ongoing, continuous action. The idea is that he is calling them to turn from sin to God on a regular basis in their lives, as a tone in the tenor of their life. It's not a one-time thing. It's the practice of repentance that he's calling them to. They've been committed to sin. They've been practicing sin. They've been going away from the rule and the blessing of God. He's calling them to turn from that sin to God and to go toward God's rule and toward God's blessing with real lifestyle change. Now, what does this involve? Repentance for them and for us involves a few things. Number one, it involves confession. To confess is to own it. That's the idea there, to own it. If we confess our sins before God, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. John chapter 1, verse 9. To confess is to own it. Anybody have a teenager? You know when you call them out on something? Dude, why did you just do that? What? I didn't do that. Bro, I saw you do that. Just own it. Part of repentance is owning our sin, owning our actions. The second part is sorrow. Godly sorrow is spoken of in the book of Corinthians. Godly sorrow, not not worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is, gosh, I'm sorry I got caught. Or man, that sure did get messy. Or that didn't pay off. Or gosh, that kind of cost me. Or now I lost my reputation. Or now I don't have that. This is godly sorrow. Godly sorrow is a deep sense of grief of having offended a holy and righteous God by my rebellious actions. Rare in our culture. Rare in the church in America today because we don't have that high of a view of the holiness of God. But true repentance always involves godly sorrow, which says, I am... I am grieved that I have offended a righteous and holy God who loves me. And then it includes action. It's not just feeling sorry. It's not just saying, yeah, I did it. It includes action. True repentance is to renounce, to turn away from 
the wrong way that we're going. Without that, it's not repentance. It's not repentance. Unless we turn away from that sin and to God. And what he's calling Israel to, and what God is always calling us to, is a lifestyle of repentance. Getting on course continuously. Israel had wandered and needed to get back on course, constantly making straight the paths. Now, we Christians repent for our sins, put our faith in Jesus Christ for, his price, for the price that he paid on the cross for our sins, and we are saved, born again, forgiven once and for all. But then wouldn't we confess that often in our lives, having been brought into the kingdom, the rule and the blessing of God through forgiveness, we often wander from the rule and the blessing of God. Remember last week, to dwell in the kingdom is obedience. So what we need then is to lay hold of the practice of repentance that says, God, I'm going the opposite way of your rule. I'm removing myself from the space and the place and the ways of your blessing. I need to repent of that. I'm owning that I'm doing this. I feel sorrowful that I'm offending a holy and righteous God who loves me and I'm going to forsake it, renounce it, turn from it and turn back toward your rule and your blessing. That's what it is to live in the kingdom. That's what it was supposed to be for Israel as God's people. That's what it's supposed to be for us as Christians who've been brought into the kingdom because of our faith in Jesus Christ. That is why he says in verse 8, look at it there in verse 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. See, it's not to repent, to say I'm sorry and do it again forever. It's real lifestyle change. Now, I want you to notice to whom Jesus is speaking there. It says in verse 7, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. And don't suppose that you can say to yourselves, Well, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Meet the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You'll see them all the time in the book of Matthew. We'll talk about them more later, but they were sort of the ruling religious class of Israel during the time. Especially the Pharisees, they were the most observant of the rules. These were the ones who thought, well, because of my pedigree and because of the things I do externally, I am good enough with God to assume that this call of John the Baptist doesn't apply to me. What isn't clear in the New American Standard Bible that we get from other translations is that they weren't coming to be baptized. They were coming to see others being baptized. It says in the New Living Translation explicitly, they came to watch John baptize people. In other words, they thought they were fine. Yeah, you guys should totally repent and be baptized by John. But we're fine. We're very religious. We're keeping the rules here. And we're Jewish. We have Abraham as our father. And what John is saying to them is that you, the very ones who think themselves to be fine, need to look at their lives and make sure that they are bearing fruit indicative of repentance. Repentance. 
My friend's here. He has an avocado orchard. He expects this afternoon when he walks into the avocado orchard that there will be fruit there. Israel says through the prophets repeatedly to the nation of Israel, I expected to come to you, my vineyard, and to find fruit there. And the expectation of the king for those who live in the kingdom is that our lives would bear fruit here for the glory of God. Life transformation. So the message that he gave to the religious who thought they were okay, that we need to be careful to hear, is bear fruit in keeping with repentance. What is the evidence that you are going God's way, living under his rule and his blessing? Because there's chaff and there's wheat. There's good trees and there are bad trees. There's two ways you can go by. And it wasn't as though he's calling here pagans to repentance. He's calling God's people to repentance. This wasn't an outside message. This was an in-house message. So let me make that an in-house message to us. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Is there evidence in our lives that we have made the decision to go Christ's way, be under his rule and his blessing. For, John says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom has come, the kingdom is present, and the fullness of the kingdom is coming. We live in the tension of the in-between. Just like John and Israel during this time lived at the tension of the in-between. In between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there was some tension there. We live in between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ when the kingdom has been inaugurated and it will be consummated. But it is present in our midst. What is the kingdom? Again, God's rule and God's blessing. How is that meant to be present in our midst? Through God's people. God created humanity and God intended to rule them and to bless them. God rejected the rule of God and removed themselves from the blessing of God. God formed a nation, Israel, to whom he would express his rule and his blessing and through whom he wanted to extend to the world his rule and his blessing. Israel struggled with that and never pulled it off. God has sent his Messiah, the King, Jesus Christ, to bring his rule and his blessing. Jesus has created his church to be the expression and the extension of his rule and his blessing. That there would be fruit, evidence of the kingdom. Even when life isn't going our way, like John the Baptist, Jesus says, well, look at the fruit. Look at what's happening. How are we ever to do that? And here's where we finish. In verse 11, John says, one is coming after me. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John's baptism was just a prefigure, just a small thing. Jesus is coming. He will baptize us with the Holy Spirit and with fire. What does that mean? The idea of baptism is immersion and being filled and covered in. We as the people of God, are filled with the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit lives in us. We're regenerated by the Spirit. 
We belong to Jesus because the Spirit is in us. The Spirit is given as the evidence and, and, and the down payment of our faith and our salvation, the Scriptures say. And because we have the Spirit of God in us, we can bear fruit in keeping with repentance because the Spirit of God is the power of God in us that we might continually manifest that the power of sin has been broken in our lives and live in a different way. God's Spirit in us. But then it said fire. What's fire? Fire doesn't sound good. Does fire sound good? No, fire doesn't sound good. What's fire? Fire is usually really bad in Scripture. Heavy-duty judgment language. But this is an in-house message. This is refinement language. Again, the book of Malachi. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? Speaking of the king, Jesus. For he will be like a refiner's fire. This is what the Jewish audience would have thought when they heard John say this. Or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. The work of Jesus in our lives is the work of salvation, being born again by the work of the Holy Spirit and his spirit indwelling in us that we might be new creations who have new life. And the work of Jesus in our lives is the same as it was in God and Israel, the work of refinement, chastening, conforming us to the image of Christ, that we might bear fruit in keeping with repentance, that we might in a continual way say, this is the wrong way, I'm heading God's way. I've made my own rule. I'm heading toward God's rule. I've moved myself away from the blessing and into the curse of sin. I'm going back toward the blessing of Christ, bearing fruit and keeping with repentance. The work of the Spirit in us is life transformation. May the Lord work it in us more and more. Amen? Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the promise of Jesus, who is the greater one, greater than John the Baptist who is present with us and working in us by his spirit. That you would, Lord, work a work of transformation in us. I often find myself in the place of the Pharisee saying, well, I'm good enough. Or I'm better than those guys. Thank you that your word doesn't let me say that today. Your word calls me to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. To keep going the king's way. Thank you, Lord. Help us do that today, Lord, as we come and take communion together today. Would it be a wonderful reminder of your love and the finished work of Christ on the cross through whom we have new life, by whom we've been given the spirit to live different lives. Would we receive much joy in taking communion together today? Teach us to pray, Lord, as your church. Even though we live in the tension of the already not yet kingdom. Teach us to pray today, thy kingdom come, thy will be done in our lives for your glory, Lord. We ask these things together in Jesus' name. Amen.